Well, good morning. Good to see you this morning. Thank you for those of you who are joining us online as well. It's good to have you. Just can't see you, but you can see us. Well, uh, Friday night, I participated in the youth event. Um, Not in the sense that I was like a participant necessarily. Uh, There were a number of youth out, quite a few actually. Uh, But they did what was known as a mall hunt out at West Edmonton Mall. And I was, in a sense, one of those Waldos that had hidden and the youth were to come and find us. I think there were maybe eight or ten or so of us that were spread out through all the, out the mall. The kids were up at, set up in teams and they went looking for us. And I hid actually in plain sight in the middle of the food court in phase three. What struck me, now granted it was a Friday night, but what struck me was the place was packed. It was busy. And I haven't been to a mall, I was thinking back, I can't actually remember. And I don't think that I've been a mall, at a mall in all of COVID. So over two years, and probably even before that, it's just not something that I uh, spend a lot of time thinking about shopping and all those kind of things. Now I went there with the intention that I planned to eat supper. So I'm hungry, and I'm sitting in the middle of a food court with lots of options. Lots of places I could go, and I'm like, oh, that sounds good. It took me like 15 minutes to decide on what I should finally have for dinner. It was completely overwhelming in that sense. Now, you remember in the pre-COVID days, you might walk through a a food court, and it was maybe, um, you know, a little bit thin, and there weren't many people. And there always be those people, like, that had, like, a plate of, like, you know, teriyaki chicken or something with toothpicks in it, and they're like handing out samples, trying to lure you in to like buy your lunch at their particular establishment. All oh, those were the days, weren't they? I used to go to Costco for dinner. Who else did that, you know, when they had all those samples out? <clears throat> but the interesting thing is when you just stop and think about what is actually happening in that little transaction, these little samples that are handed out, or even walking through a mall and you look at the storefronts of every mall or every store in the mall, there's something set up there that looks attractive. Makes you think about, oh, I might look good in that. Or, oh, I need that. I'm going to go into this store. And sometimes just going into the store is enough to get you to buy things that you probably don't even need. I mean, when you, when you think about it, advertising is completely based on this. And all of these things, whether they're the storefronts and the malls, samples handed out in a food court, advertising, whatever it is, they all have one purpose, that is to lure you in, to tempt you, <clears throat> to appeal to a need that you have, maybe to even awaken a desire within you and get you to spend money that maybe you don't even have. Advertising at its core is created to make you dissatisfied with what you have so that you long for whatever they're selling. There's a part of our human nature that makes us very susceptible to that. And that it's easy for us to be drawn away from God's best for our lives because of it. And God has laid before us the opportunity, really, for a full and abundant life. This is what he promises to us. That the gospel is as much about not only the eternal life, but it is about the life here and now. You can live it full and abundantly. But sometimes we actually miss God's best. Because our hearts can love superficial things. 
lesser things. And when our lives get disordered, we end up pursuing happiness apart from God. And that is why it is so important that we guard our hearts. What I hope to do this morning is to introduce to you uh, a new series of messages that uh, we're going to launch over these next seven weeks. And I have to tell you up front that I'm feeling a little bit of pressure on this one. Um, Because it could go horribly wrong. And uh, you might totally misunderstand it. You might be like, oh, this is going to sound heavy. And, and oh, I don't know if I want to deal with this. And I'll tell you what, what it is in a second. Um, but listen to me carefully this morning. And I just want to invite you into a journey. In fact, I want to invite you to three things this morning. The first is that I want to invite you, as Pastor Adam mentioned at the announcements, into a Lenten journey. <clears throat> Secondly, I want, us, I want to invite you into a deeper reflection of sin. Yeah, that's kind of how our staff looked at me, too. You're kind of like, really? For seven weeks? Yeah, bear with me. And thirdly, I want to invite us into some intentional practices. I truly believe that this series could be transformational in each of our lives. It may make us uncomfortable at times, but I also actually think that that's a good thing. We'll probably experience the conviction of the Holy Spirit on more than one occasion. Because just when you come and you think, oh, that's not really my issue, you discover that, oh, maybe, in fact, it is. And being convicted of the Holy Spirit is actually a good thing. Because it drives us and pushes us to Jesus. So first, let me invite you into this journey through Lent. Now, I don't know what your tradition is, but I grew up never ever thinking about Lent, never ever being introduced to Lent. I didn't even know what Lent was. I was first introduced to it about maybe 15 years ago. And then even since then, it hasn't been a significant focus uh, for the church. I mean, last year, maybe the year before last year during the services, we did these little Lenten minutes. The year before that was kind of right at the start of COVID, and we invited you into some some scripture reading uh, at that time. But, but what I've been experiencing um, just as I have, well, one was just kind of using a particular resource that I'll mention in a second, but I, I feel like as a church, it's important for us to rediscover what is known as the church calendar. And, and the, the church calendar, it's not like, you know, this event or that event in a sense, but the church calendar is actually um, based on the life of Jesus. It traces the life of Jesus. And it really is a way of journeying ultimately with Jesus. Or to put it in more familiar terms, maybe to us at TCC, of walking with Jesus. I think it's helpful for us to remind ourselves that Jesus said, follow me, not just think about me. And so we walk with Jesus, we follow him through his life. And the church calendar is really just another way to see time. It doesn't start with January 1, it actually starts in late November with Advent on the fourth Sunday before Christmas. And Advent, if you're familiar with that, of course, it prepares us for the birth of Jesus, to to celebrate the arrival of Emmanuel. And so we might think of it as this season of God with us. And it leads right through uh, a season of Epiphany, where the focus really is on who Jesus is and how he's revealed in who he is. Lent, then, is a period uh, of time leading up to Good Friday. And it starts as what is known as Ash Wednesday, and that's actually March 2nd, or the first Wednesday in March. And this is really a season of God 
for us. So Advent is God with us. Lent is God for us. And just as Advent prepares us for Christmas, Lent actually prepares us for Good Friday. And uh, Pastor Adam already mentioned the, the Advent calendar um, that maybe you had during Advent uh, where you would, you know, flip over the little cards, reveal a chocolate, those kind of things. And those Eyes on Jesus posters that, that Jenna created are fantastic. And so if you have children and even youth, I want to encourage you, pick one of those up and it's going to just give you a, a daily reading um, as it reveals each day uh, an attribute of who Jesus is. And if there's some left over, we'll, we'll make them available to, to the rest of you as well. But families take, take part of that. Now, getting back just to the church calendar. So then after Easter, it's from Easter to Pentecost is a season of 50 days. And that is a season really where God is in us, where we're reminded of the Holy Spirit's activity in our life. And then the rest of the year, which is really the bulk of the year all the way through to the end of November, is known as Ordinary Time, which just seems like such a strange, uh, simple title. Don't think as ordinary as in boring. Think about it more as in like every day. And this is now a season of God working through us, right? So do you see how the season just kind of flows from God with us to God for us to God in us and to God working through us. And that is kind of the posture that we want to do. We just do that year after year and understand that we're invited into this yearly annual journey through the life of Jesus. And Lent then specifically is an intentional journey to the cross. It's an opportunity to enter into Jesus's suffering, to remember the trials and the temptations of Jesus as he wandered in the wilderness. And that's why we had Karen read that passage in Luke chapter 4. Now, whatever you may know about Lent or know of Lent, perhaps from your own personal experience of your past, maybe it was so dull and routine and boring that you, you kind of lost sight of that or whatever. But whatever it is, it is this. It is a time for quiet contemplation and grievance for sin. And it's a season that is marked, um, or sorry, it's a season ultimately of reconciliation between God and man. It's marked by a time of prayer and preparation to celebrate Easter. And Lent spans 40 days. As I said, it starts on what's known as Ash Wednesday, which this year is March 2nd, and it ends during Holy Week on the Saturday before Easter. And in order to calculate the 40 days, if you're looking at a calendar, you think, well, that's more like 46, 47 days. And that's because the Sundays aren't counted, aren't counted. They're not included in the actual 40 days of Lent because Sundays, even during Lent, are still a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. And so when you think about this 40 days, 40 days is a traditional number for discipline and for preparation in Scripture. Let me just give you a few examples that, uh, that may be familiar to you or maybe you want to go and think about this a little bit. But Moses stayed on the mountain for 40 days. You know, we think he just kind of went out, met with God and came back, you know, kind of a long weekend uh, with Jesus kind of thing. But it was 40 days. The spies that Moses sent into the land of Canaan were in the land for 40 days. Elijah traveled 40 days before he reached the cave where he had an encounter with God. Nineveh was given 40 days to repent. And of course, maybe most notably, Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness praying and fasting. And there's this fascinating parallel, really, between Jesus' 40 days of wandering in the wilderness with Israel's 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Um, <clears throat> but I don't have time to, to cover some of that. But if you're interested in that, um, 
uh, just explore that a little bit on your own. But whatever Lent is, it really is, as I said a couple of times now, a time of preparation. It's, it's an intentional preparation of our hearts, reflecting on what needs to change in our lives. It becomes a season of soul-searching and repentance. In other words, it's really an inv- invitation to really examine our inner lives. How does the enemy tempt us? What are some of the roots of our sin? And discovering practices that ultimately, I believe, are helpful in guarding our hearts. What are those practices? Well, this temptation and these practices is really what we see in the temptation of Jesus. And I want to just for a few moments take us back to Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to, to open uh, to that um, passage. And as Pastor Adam mentioned, there are Bibles available that if you want to pick one up so you can flip through uh, a Bible yourself, uh, you're welcome to go pick one of those, those up. But this passage is also found in Matthew chapter 4 as well. And again, it might be a familiar passage to us. It happens right after Jesus' baptism in terms of the chronology of his life. And in the opening verses, it says that he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Don't miss this. Jesus followed the leading of the Spirit. It was the Spirit that led him into the desert. And verse 2 says, where for 40 days, I just covered that, he was tempted by the devil. And he was tempted by the devil during these 40 days. But there's another thing that he did during these 40 days. It says that he ate nothing during those days. In other words, he fasted from food. And, and I love how Luke says, and at the end of those 40 days, he was hungry. It's like stating the obvious, right? He was hungry. And so you need to picture Jesus here in this scene as someone who is vulnerable the, the humanity of, of Jesus. I mean, yes, he was fully God, but he was also fully man. And so from a man, he, he would be um, vulnerable, physically depe- depleted, exhausted, tired, hungry. Incidentally, do you ever find that that's when Jesus, or that's when Satan comes and tempts you? When we're vulnerable, when we're tired, when we're weak, when we're exhausted, when we haven't been taking care of ourselves, when we haven't been getting nights, like, enough sleep, we haven't been eating well, whatever it is, Satan finds times when we are particularly vulnerable and he tempts us just as he tempted Jesus. So how did he tempt Jesus? <clears throat> now in my study and preparation this week, I was introduced to the work uh, of Mike Breen, who has a framework of interpreting the temptations of Jesus. And his three words, I think, are super simple and super instructive, and and I'm going to share them with you this morning. So he first says that uh, the first temptation is appetite, ambition, and then approval. So first, appetite. This is the the stones becoming bread uh, temptation. And so in verses 3 and 4, the devil said to him, to Jesus, if you are the son of God, see the, do you see the little, the little nuance there that, that here's Jesus questioning uh, Jesus as the, sorry, Satan questioning Jesus, if you are the son of God, tell the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. And in Matthew's gospel, he adds this, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
And so this temptation is about the things that we rely on to make us feel alive, to make us feel good. Obviously, food is most notably one of the things that we we have an appetite for, but there's other things as well. And the challenge really is, is to say no to those things because we ultimately want to say yes to something better. Lent is a season where we are continually reminded that we too are weak and vulnerable, that we have limitations, and that we must ultimately rely fully on God. You see, it's so easy for us to depend on things, to fill us, on stuff, on entertainment, things that we hope will bring joy and satisfaction, but are all, we are always left wanting more. Whenever we find ourselves saying, I need it, I need that, about something or someone other than God, we've probably, excuse me, have discovered an addiction or coping strategy in our own lives. For me, coffee and caffeine are an issue. I wake up, I have my mug of coffee, which is worth three cups, I come to the office, I have another couple cups. In the afternoon, I might make yet another coffee. And by supper time, I'm like, you know, I better cut back on the caffeine and I'll have a decaf. Tina looks at me and says, Norb, you're addicted to coffee. And I'm like, no, 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 I just really enjoy it. But honestly, I think it's come to the place where I need it. I depend on it to make me feel fully alive, to wake me up. What is it for you? You see, if you need anything to kind of make it through your day, to feel good, you need a glass of wine, you need something sweet, something that your body or mind craves in a way that says, ultimately, I don't trust my Father to give me the good life. Whatever those things are, we're being tempted through those things in the same way that Jesus was here. So my question to you is when you think of this as appetite, what do you crave in such a way that it controls you? What do you crave in such a way that controls you where where you might reorient your day around it? It affects you, your mood, your emotions, everything in a way that it controls you because you're craving something. And if you can't have it in the moment, what does that do to you? And how instead can you then rely on the Spirit of God as opposed to the things that you might crave? Maybe another way of looking at it is is just asking yourself, what do I hunger after? What do I hunger after? And just explore that a little bit, and I think you'll find it very telling. Well, the second way that Jesus was was tempted, tempted was through ambition. Ambition, And this is verses 5 to 8. The devil led him to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. If you worship me, Satan says, it will all be yours. And Jesus responds, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And so Satan comes to Jesus with this temptation. He goes, you can have all of this. Just worship me. And the temptation here is to fill our souls with the next achievement 
What is that ambition that is driving us? Thinking that somehow the next success will fill the hunger in my soul. And so we pursue those things at all costs, sometimes taking shortcuts. And that's what Satan was offering Jesus. You can have a shortcut. You don't need to go to the cross. You don't need to suffer. You just bow down and worship me and I'll give you all of this. Never mind the fact that he could never give him all of this, but that was the allure and the, and the lie that Satan was, was giving him. And Jesus continually invites us to say yes to something greater, to worship the Lord your God and serve him only full stop, to depend on God alone, to truly live in such a way that no matter what, Christ is, in fact, enough for me. What ambitions drive you? Thirdly, the temptation of approval. The temptation of approval. This is verses 9 through 12. The the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. He says, "If if you are the Son of God, there it is again, this questioning, this doubt, placing this this thought in Jesus' mind, like, are you really the Son of God? And he said, if you are, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord, your God, to the test. So Satan comes along and says, are you really the son of God? Do you have his approval? Well, then prove it. How often are we tempted to prove to others who we are? How often are we motivated by the approval of others? I wrestle with this all of the time. So my own insecurities drive me to be liked. In many ways, I think it's a professional hazard for many pastors. But I have to ask myself, can I be secure in God? Can I rest in the certain knowledge that I am a child of God? You see, Jesus didn't have to prove it. Because just before this temptation in the wilderness, Jesus was baptized. And if you remember there, there was a voice from heaven that spoke. And that voice from heaven was God the Father himself. And he said of Jesus, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Jesus hadn't even started his ministry. He didn't go out and do anything. He hadn't done any miracles. It wasn't like... like You know, that he was gaining the Father's approval. The Father gave it to him. The Father affirmed who he was at the very beginning. Friends, can you imagine the freedom that each of us would live with if we were to fully accept that this is true about us? That you are a son of the King? That you are a son and daughter of of the Most High God? That you are beloved by God? And that he is well pleased with you. So this takes me back to the invitation of Lent. Because you see, the invitation is to say no. So that you can say yes to something, someone better. 
a relationship with the Father. And that requires a willingness, I believe, to reflect and examine our own lives. And so the first invitation is to just enter into this Lenten journey. Enter into these this wilderness wanderings where you think about, what are my motivations? What am I tempted by? Does it have anything to do with appetite, ambition, or approval? Secondly, the invitation is to reflect on sin. <clears throat> and to, in order to do that, we're going to look at something that is known for, for, for centuries, really, as the seven deadly sins. Some of you may know some of these. You may not know all of them. Hopefully, you'll become very familiar with them over these next few weeks, because we'll look at one each week. But the seven are gluttony, anger, greed, Sloth, not a word we use very often, but we'll explain it. Envy, lust, and vainglory. Again, an older word that is very much related to pride. Now, I'm not going to define each one right now because we're going to do that over the course of this series. This series really is called Guarding Your Heart, and that's very intentional. Because as an invitation to reflect on sin, we, we recognize that it's about guarding our hearts. And what got me thinking about this subject, apart from finishing Colossians and then looking, counting the number of Sundays to Easter and going, oh, there's seven Sundays. What can I do for seven Sundays? And, and immediately this thought was, you know, well, seven deadly sins. And I went, no, that's a bad idea. I don't, I don't want to do that. <laughs> and then when we were finishing Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 10, Pastor Adam um, preached on these, on these passages or these verses. And um, let me just remind you again of them. And it begins in verse 5, put to death, put to death. I mean, let me just stop there for a second, because it's like your mission, our mission, should you choose to accept it, is to search and destroy. Put to death. Therefore, whatever brings, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, that human nature, that sinful nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, past tense, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on, put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. And so again, there's this putting to death or putting off and this putting on of Christ, putting on what is known as virtues. And so we're going to use that language uh, a little bit as well. These virtues, what does it look like to, to have a counterpoint to some of these vices? Now, most of you are probably familiar with this when I say seven deadly sins, because maybe you've seen it in movies, you've read about it in literature. Um, it, it seems to be fairly known even in contemporary culture, and so maybe perhaps there's some relevancy uh, to it in that way. But um, the list itself was originally put together in the fourth century. So this isn't anything like new. We're talking 
hundreds of years, over a thousand years, and in all the generations that followed, the list was carefully refined right up until the 13th century where we have, um, for the most part, what is our, our most common uh, list of seven. And they're called deadly for several reasons. Because when you just stop and think about sin itself, we know on one hand that sin is incredibly destructive and harmful to us and usually to others that we love. When I think of broken relationships, you can almost always trace them back to some root cause or root sin in, in, uh, in our lives. Now, on one hand, sin is deadly because Scripture teaches that the wages of sin is death. And this is true of all sin, not just the seven that made the list, right? But John Mabry writes this. He says, these seven are deadly in the sense that they are sinful dispositions which, if given free reign, would take over our lives. Think about that. They would take over our lives if they're given free reign, spirit, soul, and body, and lead us further and further down the wide road of destruction. And nobody wants to go there. Now, the primary source book, other than the Bible, of course, that we'll be using in our preparations is a a book by Rebecca DeYoung titled Glittering Vices, right? So this alluring attractiveness, these glittering vices, a new look, the subtitle is, at the seven deadly sins and their remedies. And in her book, she suggests other names or references for the seven deadly sins, even though she uses that in the subtitle of the book. But, but she refers to them at one point as capital sins. Capital comes from the Latin word for caput or head. Sorry, Latin word for head, which is caput, K-A-C-A-P-U-T, meaning source, like the head of a river. And these sins were considered capital sins, not because they're the, they were the worst, but because they're considered kind of like gateway sins, what Dorothy Sayers called wellheads from which all sinful behavior ultimately springs. They're the root of all other sin, in other words. And as DeYoung notes in her book, writers in the Middle Ages often compared the sins to a tree with its network of roots and branches. And so while pride was, was the root and the trunk itself, the vices of vainglory and envy and wrath and sloth and greed and gluttony and lust were these main branches off of this main trunk, and each of these branches ultimately yielding a harvest of fatal fruit. The seven then that we'll examine are considered leading sins or breeding sins that nest deeply in our hearts, and ultimately produce further sins. But the seven sins themselves should not be viewed only as capital sins, but also as deeply ingrained character-shaping habits of the heart. This insight is captured by this language of virtue and vice. Virtues, writes De Young, are excellencies of character, habits, or dispositions of character that help us live as human beings. Similarly, the vices are corruptive and destructive habits. They undermine both our goodness of character and our living and acting well. And then she goes on and says, vices concern deeply rooted patterns in our character, patterns broader than a single act, but narrower than our sinful condition in general. In other words, as Brian Hedges writes, one angry outburst 
does not in itself mean that wrath is your vice. But if you are at adept or as adept at unleashing hostile words as Indiana Jones is at lashing a whip, wrath has a nameplate on the door of your heart. Isn't that good? If you're as adept as unleashing hostile words as Indiana Jones is at lashing a whip, wrath has a nameplate on the door of your heart. You see, vices don't take hold in our hearts overnight. Again, quoting DeYoung, they are gradually internalized and become firm and settled through years of formation. Think about that. They become firm and settled through years of formation. In other words, they're habitual sin. And they're so habitual that we are usually unaware of them. And these vices, they corrupt our hearts. That's why it's so crucial for us to guard our hearts, to detect them before they become lethal. Uh, Tim Keller had this great quote, and he was specifically speaking about pride, but I think it, it illustrates this point. He says, pride is the carbon monoxide of sin. It silently and slowly kills you without you even knowing. You see, Satan knows how to tempt us. He knows that we're tempted by appetite, ambition, and approval. Because we've not put to death some of these seven vices. For example, when my heart is corrupted by gluttony and lust, then I will be tempted by appetite. When my heart is corrupted by vainglory or pride, I'll be easily tempted by approval. When my heart is corrupted by greed, unbridled ambition to accumulate more and more at the cost of others is the end result. Now, when talking about sin, and I want you to hear this clearly, the point in all of this is not a guilt trip. It's not a guilt trip. The goal is not for us to just completely despair about our sin for the next seven weeks. But do recognize that conviction of sin is really an invitation to be set free. And that's why my final invitation is this, an invitation into intentional practices. Now, we talk a lot about practices at TCC, and the season of Lent is an opportunity for every one of us to be very intentional about spiritual growth and formation. Lent is intended to be a season of spiritual renewal. That is ultimately goal. That is the invitation to you this morning. And something that we would see in the temptation of Jesus is that the resources that were available to him are also available to us. Resources like silence and solitude, fasting and prayer, um, scripture, empowered all by the Holy Spirit. He overcame temptation in the desert because he was prepared for it. He guarded his heart over time, we might say. And we talk about this discipleship framework at TCC that's a combination of teaching, community, and practices, all empowered by the Holy Spirit that over time brings transformation. And so on Sundays, we'll do the teaching about these seven deadly sins. 
But I hope that during the week you might engage in practices yourself that help you go deeper and discover this, as I'll share some of those in a second. And ultimately, even in community, it would be awesome if you said, you know what, two other people. You're a woman, find two other women. Maybe some of you are already in a triad. Men, find two other men. And commit to walking this journey out together in community, in relationship, because you're going to need people to process some of this with and to pray with you and to pray for you. And so that's the invitation to experience this in the context of community. But what are these practices? I mean, there's obviously the discipline of silence and solitude. (laughs) When Jesus was all alone in the desert, right? It was silent and he was by himself and it's remote, and it's barren, and you're vulnerable. Uh, In November, late October, Tina and I, we went to Phoenix, and we went for a walk, not even far from where we live, but we were so far north, we just walked out into the desert. And if you've ever been out there, you suddenly feel incredibly small and vulnerable, because you think, if we got lost out here, (laughs) we'd be in trouble. We don't know what kind of animals around here. You just feel vulnerable there when you're in that place. And so when we gather, when we find ourselves in silence and in solitude, here's a couple of things that you might intentionally practice. The first then ultimately starts with self-examination and confession, because they go together, right? Self-examination and confession. So in other words, this is the posture of what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 139, verse 23, search me, God and know my heart. That's the invitation to pray that prayer before God. Search me, God, and know my heart. Why? Because we don't know our own hearts. The Bible says that the heart is deceitful. We can so easily be misled by by what we think is the true condition of our heart, and we miss it. And so when we come before God, when we come before the Spirit of God, and we say, search my heart, suddenly, whoa, I didn't expect that. (laughs) I didn't see that there. Well, then we're invited to confess that. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, that's the starting point, He, that is God, is faithful and just, and here's the promise, will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So we intentionally enter into self-examination confession. We practice that. Another practice is fasting. And specifically here, I'm going to invite you as a congregation to participate in a weekly 24-hour fast on Thursdays. Now, Pastor Adam will speak a little bit more to you this next week when he talks about gluttony because fasting is a good response to, uh, to, to gluttony. But I want you to tuck that, this idea away for now and just think, can I do that? Can I commit to this? Because if you can commit to it, we're going to ask you maybe to sign up for that and say, hold me accountable to this. I'm, I'm, I'm raising my hand. I'm saying, I'm going to do this. And how it is, is you have dinner on Friday, or sorry, on Wednesday, like you normally would. You go to bed, you don't eat breakfast, and you don't eat lunch, and then you break the fast at supper. That's the 24 hours. So it's only two meals. Jesus did it for 40 days, and he was hungry. We can barely go four hours without feeling hungry. So it's a challenge, but that's the invitation. Another aspect or another um, practice 
that I want you to think about too, um, and it's related to fasting, is the idea of abstaining, right? And this is maybe where Lent is kind of that most common thing, where there's one thing that we think of giving up, right? And um, what's it going to be? What are, what are those things that we need to say no to for 40 days um, in order to say yes to something greater? Um, another practice, of course, is scripture and prayer. So here we're going to provide daily scripture reading um, because it's important to immerse ourselves in the word. You see, I don't know if you caught this, but Jesus, every time he responded to one of those three temptations of, of, of Satan, he responded with scripture. And it's actually from a very specific part of Deuteronomy, so it's very likely that he had that from his Jewish upbringing in the synagogue. He had that memorized. Because it starts in chapter 6 and I think verse 13, and chapter 6 and verse 18, and then chapter 8 and verse 3. Those were the three passages that he responded to Jesus with. So Jesus used the resource of Scripture to respond to temptation. And so when we engage in Scripture and prayer, it's the same thing. We're making ourselves available to that resource. And a resource that we've recommended often here at TCC is just this little booklet called Seeking God's Face. And if you get the small version, this is what we have. You need bifocals or a magnifying glass. It's super tiny font. Um, But I can pull it off and hold it like this and read it. But um, you can get larger print versions, and we're going to send out a PDF version about it. But the subtitle of that is Praying with the Bible Through the Year. Um, There's some copies that are going to be available. I think Tina will put some out on the table underneath the uh, the stairs there. It's a nice little um, booklet that you can year year after year, and it follows, not surprisingly, the church calendar. And they're $20 each if you want to pick one of those up. And if that's too much, just take one. Um, So to summarize, okay, Lent is a season where we're invited to say no. Think about that. It's just simply this, invited to say no so that we can say yes to something better. We say no to make space for God so that we can say yes to him. And through regular engagement with spiritual practices, we're shaped and formed and transformed over time. That is the life of a follower of Jesus. Not just thinking about Jesus, but walking with him daily. Dallas Willard tells Christians to stop trying to be like Jesus. He writes this, he says, If you want to keep all of Jesus' commands, don't try to keep his commands. You're like, what? Become the kind of person who would easily and routinely keep all of Jesus' commands. In other words, he's saying, don't try to be like Jesus. Train to be like Jesus. And there's a big difference between trying and training. Let me illustrate this. If I decided that I'm going to try to run a marathon next Saturday, it's not going to happen. No matter how hard I try, it's not going to happen. But if I set my mind to running a marathon in June, which I'm not doing, by the way. Pastor Adam, I think, is doing one in May in Winnipeg. So he'll be training. But there's a big difference between trying to run a marathon and training for a marathon. And in training for a marathon, I don't believe you actually ever run a marathon. But if you get to 20 miles, you can then probably do 26 plus miles. You see, we overcome temptation not by trying harder, but by training. And that is why these spiritual practices are essential to our training. 
So friends, these are the invitations. An invitation to journey through Lent over these next uh, seven weeks, 40 days. An invitation to reflect on sin or the root causes of some of our behaviors. And ultimately, an invitation to engage in spiritual practices. And let me just conclude with this encouragement. Throughout it, while we're going to be focusing on sin, we're going to make much of Jesus. We're going to make much of Jesus. Because friends know this, that grace is always greater than our sin. Grace is always greater than our sin. And when I was thinking about this, the words to the hymn, and can it be that I should gain it, And we haven't sung that for a long time, but this is a great hymn. Listen to this. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? How can that be? Died he for me who ultimately caused his pain. For me who him to death pursued. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me. And that's the chorus, the refrain that is said over and over and over again. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Tim Keller says, for every one look at your sins, take five looks at your Savior. And that is what we must do. So friends, can there be a better way to prepare for Good Friday? That as we reflect and consider sin, our sin, that we would continually come back to God's unending love and amazing grace. I'm going to invite the worship team to come and we're going to sing a song called Christ is Enough. And it really, in, in many ways, it's a declaration of a commitment. A declaration that you're saying today, you know what? there's a lot of things I can say no to because Christ is enough. We just went through Colossians where the message was Christ is sufficient. Jesus is all we need. And so I'm going to invite you to stand and let's pray together and then let's sing this song together. Father, I pray that as your spirit led Jesus into the wilderness, I pray that it would not be my words today that would convince or cajole or make people feel obligated or guilty or anything else to to enter into the invitation that I've laid out this morning, but that it would be your spirit guiding us as your spirit guided Jesus out into the wilderness, leading us to a place where we can enter into the sufferings of Jesus. To recognize that, yes, in fact, it was our sin that put Jesus on the cross. But you paid the price. You paid the debt that you did not owe so that we could be set free, that we could have forgiveness of sins, that we could experience eternal life. But you have so much more for us. You want us to experience full and abundant life now. So, Father, when we sing this song, I pray that we would respond to your Spirit's invitation to not just think about you, but to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.